electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Morgan Brennan. Kramer has the morning off. Futures are red. Stocks starting the week close to one-month lows as earnings season kicks into second gear. We're going to get Netflix, IBM, Tesla, J&J, Proctor all headed our way this week. A robot begins with that huge week for earnings. B of A crossing the tape today. We'll get AT&T as well. Amex among those set to report in the week ahead. Plus, of course, there is Musk and Twitter. That takeover saga continues. The board adopts a so-called poison pill. And Jack Dorsey points to board dysfunction, as well as Elon Musk cryptically tweeting, love me tender. And Rivian CEO with an EV warning, pointing to the battery supply chain as a major looming headwind for the industry. We got a lot to get to this morning, Carl. Yeah, we're going to start with the markets and uh, B of A in particular kicking off that busy earnings week with a uh, quarterly beat, 80 cents beat 74. Revenue pretty much in line, up about two. Interesting stuff off the call, David. Uh, no, zero days of trading losses in Q1 and no real material exposure to Russia with about nine clients on that front. Those are important. Those are important uh, questions in terms of exposure to Russia. We all know, of course, City, which we already heard from, perhaps has the largest exposure amongst the U.S. banks. Still a lot of questions about the European banks. But, you know, uh, uh, no losses, but not as much volatility, uh, Carl. And we all know it's uh, I should say a lot of volatility, not as much capital markets activity. Uh, certainly right now for many of these banks. We saw J.P. Morgan's numbers. We've seen uh, others as well. Um, but the market reaction, Morgan, at this point, let's call it mixed. B of A, always a good read as well on the consumer. We're going to hear from uh, Leslie a bit later in the program, get some uh, highlights from the conference call because that can be important. Looking at their, uh, you know, their slides this morning, they said consumer spending did remain strong in the first quarter, up 14% year over year. Yeah. Uh, and certainly it's been kind of a mixed bag in general over the past week with all the major bank earnings. And so you mentioned Bank of America beat on consensus uh, with adjusted EPS trading revenue. Equity underwriting did underwhelm. Uh, another name to point out, I think this morning, is BNY Mellon's earnings, which also came in ahead of estimates, too. Um, and, but in terms of Bank of America, the fact that profits topped estimates lender release, the lender released reserves uh, for soured loans as well, um, it, it kind of sets the tone, as we know, uh, with bank earnings always kicking off the earnings season. It sets the tone for what I think is expected to be a very high bar to hurdle from an investor standpoint uh, for American stocks, uh, American companies uh, this season, given the fact that there are so many macro headwinds that we've been talking about for so many months, Carl. 
Yeah, we're going to watch that, particularly as it applies to housing. Uh, yeah. uh, by the way, loan balances up about eight, now above uh, pre-COVID levels. Uh, David, they do see net interest income growing every quarter this year, and it was up 13 uh, in this quarter. Going to be interesting, especially since we get a lot of Fed speak this week. And then on Thursday, we get Powell not once but twice. And there is some, uh, there's some material being written this morning about whether or not uh, the Fed chair gives a green light, perhaps, to a 50 basis point hike. Yeah, well, rates continue to move higher, and that may be pressuring the broader market, at least as we get going here about 28 minutes or so from now in terms of uh, the performance of the market. Listen, the consumer continues to be a key focus, as we all know, as you take a look at the 10-year note eclipsing 2.8% on the yield. And Carl, again, back to Bank of America. They're talking about resiliency. I do want to hear the call. I do want to hear the characterization uh, of the consumer and other parts of their business as well, because I think that does uh, add to the dialogue right now in terms of, broadly speaking, macro, uh, macro headwinds, if there are any. Uh, obviously, we know the impact of inflation. Um, but the change in B of A credit card customer balances since the first quarter up 39%. That's the first quarter of 2020, I should point out. They also say U.S. households checkable deposits and currency moving higher. So on that front, again, they're talking resiliency, uh, Morgan. We do know when it comes to capital markets, of course, not to expect anything that looks like what it did for the banks a year ago, of course, when SPACs were still going strong and you could put up your numbers, both in mm. underwriting of the SPACs and then the merger, uh, the merger uh, numbers that would come along with when the SPAC announced the deal. That added a lot uh, to just overall activity for so many firms, and that's not there anymore, as well as, of course, a very sparse IPO calendar so far this year, given the volatility we've seen in the broader markets. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I mean, just to go back to credit card spending for a second, the fact that we have seen these double-digit jumps uh, with all the major banks that I've reported so far, uh, I think really speaks to your point, this this debate around the resiliency of the consumer, but also it does speak to inflation as well, given the fact that you do have consumers that are paying higher prices, as we know, these 40-decade highs for uh, inflation. And it's going to be interesting, I think, Carl, to see how that continues to, to carry out, especially given the fact that we do have all of these surveys that have been coming out showing how gloomy consumers are feeling in general about the state of the economy and about the state of the prices that they are paying. That being said, the fact that you are starting to see perhaps some leveling off uh, of those price increases in things like, for example, autos and used vehicles. Uh, key question, though, over the longer term, and this kind of brings it back to the Fed speak, is, OK, we can talk about peak inflation, but really perhaps medium to longer term, that's not really the thing that matters for the markets. It's going to be where inflation ultimately settles. Uh, yeah, and we're going to watch cars in particular. Uh, auto production in March, by the way, the best in over a year, going back to January of 21. And interestingly, David, it was B of A this morning, uh, in, or actually over the weekend, uh, their desk looking at the the way in which the lower income strata is able to keep up with rising prices, working more hours, making more per hour, growing take-home pay in the double digits with savings 2x pre-COVID with more job opportunities than they've had in 30 years. Uh, it's it's going to be a race, but it, it is tight, that ability of the lower-end consumer to keep up with prices. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I continue, though, to hear about supply chain pressures, and we'll talk more about this shortly when we talk about Rivian and, and battery uh, component supplies and what mm. that'll mean. But, you know, simple things like steel uh, and, and what what 
the price there is going to mean. I know a lot of automobiles these days have a lot more aluminum and plastic in them, perhaps. But what that's going to mean for overall components and the price of automobiles, forget the, even the chip shortage, I think will continue to be a question that we will revisit. But uh, let's get back to uh, another name that we've tended to enjoy talking about lately, and that, of course, is Twitter. Let's give you the latest this morning as we also will bring in uh, Michael Nathanson shortly as well. Not too much to report from here uh, this morning. Of course, that board is going to do what a board should do, namely um, consider all of its options. They put the pill in, as we know, poison pill, that is, that will hit at 15%. That was done on Friday. Um, Maybe a bit later than it should have been done. Unclear exactly what the real impact of it is at this point. Of course, you got Musk sort of that tweet uh, in terms of Elvis and love me tender. Um, yeah, he could do a tender. He couldn't close a tender, obviously, because to do so would be to pass 15% and then bring on the enormous dilution that a pill would bring. But you can take a look there. Very cute, Elon. Um, nonetheless, you know, if he were to actually do that and get uh, most shareholders to tender into him at 40, at 54 bucks uh, or 54.20, um, well, the board wouldn't necessarily really be able to stand in his way, would it? Um, we'll see if there are, is any other interest, if they do formally go down that ro road, but certainly you have to believe they are thinking about the possibilities in terms of both engaging with him and then knowing what else may be out there, whether it's strategic interest or even private equity. Although, frankly, when you start to do the math on private equity, even with some of those uh, rumored names uh, over the weekend, it gets tough. This is not a company that is easily levered. You know, what does it do? $800 million or so in EBITDA. You're talking at least, what, a $45 billion price potentially as much as. So very much unclear to me how you get any private equity firm there with the given the check that they would have to cut. Uh, just doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense when you, when you pen it out for the math itself. Um, and they don't need money. So, you know, Silver Lake already did a convertible preferred. Anyhow, that's a lot of talk from me, but let's bring in uh, uh, somebody who knows the company well as, uh, as well. And let's uh, start with Michael, Nathan Michael Nathanson, of course, from Moffitt Nathanson. He's Senior Managing Director. And I love talking to you, uh, Michael. Last week we talked about discovery. I think at this time let's talk Twitter uh, as well. Um, first of all, just give me your take, you know, in terms of where the stock is, in terms of what you think the company is worth, and whether you really think Musk will actually follow through. Good morning. I can't believe it's seven minutes into the hour. We just got to this topic. Um, so, so, David, <laughs> you know, thank you. Our view is that this stock is overvalued by about 20 bucks. Right. And if I, we wrote a note on Thursday saying, look, Twitter board, Twitter investors, take the money and run. Right. Because to your point, David, if you look at the, the options they have on valuation, You'd say the stock is overvalued, and if he's willing to actually pay fifty four twenty and finance it, there's and to me it's it's the best outcome for these shareholders who've been you know, buried in the stock for a long time. It's always been a story about like what we can do for you at Twitter, but they've never done it. And you know if they walk away, if he walks away, the stock's going back down to low thirties. And I don't really see, as you were saying, another option here. So I think you you have to engage him. You have to hope that you find another bidder if you could to get the price up. But the reality is the stock's overvalued. And we've argued for a long time. It's always traded on kind of the option of being a better company, but not the reality of their business model, which has always been kind of disappointing. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've always been asking those questions. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing if you're on that board or that management team, though, because even if you beat Musk, so to speak, 
Um, he's still going to stay with you, isn't he, Michael? He's still going to be a critic. Even if he doesn't own 9%, he's still got an enormous megaphone, so to speak. And so they're going to be under pressure from here, I, I would think, but I want your opinion, one way or the other, either with, uh, you know, with a potential transaction of some kind, but even without it. I agree with you. With the CEO who's new and untested, right? But, you know, he said very publicly he has no faith in the leadership of the company or the board. That's not going to end, right? He's really upset with their moderation policies. Um, they're in a tough bind, as as we as we noted. They moved to content moderation in part to help the advertising community get comfortable with Twitter. If they undo that to Musk's liking, it will hurt their advertising outlook, right? So they're in a no way position. That's why I think they should engage. Uh, you know, try their best to take on other bids. But I agree with you. You can't have someone, and, and you can see the anger on Twitter from, you know, from people who support Elon Musk, that they feel like, you know, they've been wronged and the, the platform isn't very good. And that's not going to end, right? So I, would, I don't know if I'm a, a manager of a company, do I want my biggest critic with 80 million followers every day critiquing our inability to do the things he wants to do? Yeah, I mean, to your point, he's basically using Twitter uh, as an opportunity to crowdsource both public opinion and potential investor opinion as he's looking to potentially take over Twitter. Um, this idea that the bid is potentially too low, that $60 might be the number to get a deal together. How do you see that? $60 would be a blessing. Um, you know, again, I think I'm, when I was listening to you guys on Thursday, you know, Kramer was clear. It's like, look, the board can't take a, this offer the way it's structured. You need to show that you're engaging with him. So Morgan, to your, to your point, maybe just as a, as a safe, as a, as a face saving, you know, approach, they get a little bit more money, but 60 would be a gift as well, right? So you find some more money in a cushion somewhere and you say 60 is our price and the board looks good and this thing gets done. But like there's, to, to me at this level, like we didn't have any of our clients push back on the idea that they should be sellers at 54 bucks. All our clients said, you know, you're right, take the money and run, we agree with you. You know, we've seen these bids come and go for other companies, and David could tell you the history of this. I mean, people have turned down bids before, and only you look back three years later and say, you know, I wish we didn't have, I wish we took that money. You know, I think that could happen here. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I mean to your point earlier about this idea of this is a company and this is a stock that is kind of traded on, on the promise, on the possibility, the potential, rather than the reality of the financials. I mean, do we know what a more free speech, potentially less self-regulated Twitter would actually look like and, and, and how you monetize that? Well, we do know a bit because if you go back to like the period of the past couple of years, you started to get advertisers to push back. They didn't want to be on certain platforms, right? There was a, there was a campaign against YouTube, Facebook, you remember that. If Twitter becomes unregulated and goes back to the cesspool that it was, you're going to lose advertising. You know, you'll drive engagement. Engagement will be off the charts, but I'm not sure that the brand advertisers who make up the backbone of Twitter will be supportive of Twitter, especially with TikTok rising. Um, you know, I just think it's a real risk for the business model, but that's not the risk. Someone wants to buy it and do that. God bless them. Take a private and let's see what happens privately. Yeah. All right. So put on your banker hat for me, Michael. You know, if there was a strategic buyer, any idea who that might be. I think you have to cross out big tech in some ways just because of the regulatory review that they might get. And I don't see the math working for private equity, but perhaps I'm not looking at it properly. No, I, I remember last week I turned the question to you. I said, that's what I said to you. I don't see a strategic because the big tech companies can't buy it. 
Um, the media companies that we, we all know can't really afford it right now. It would be totally dilutive. And then private equity needs cash flow to lever up this company. And as we noted, their peak cash flow was in 2018, right? And they've been paying people with stock options. And if you go private, how do you incentivize those people to stick around if you've just paid them out in stock-based comp, right? So I think it's a really hard, when, I, when we looked at the options, we came to the conclusion you did, which is this is the best option. Once Salesforce walked away in Disney years ago, there's really no other bidder here of size that could take this on. Yeah, of course, we do need to figure out how he would finance any deal. I know he's the world's wealthiest man. He can do it, but it's still a key question. Michael, I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting this, but always appreciate you taking some time for us on a Monday morning. Thank you. Pleasure. Be good. See you guys. When we come back, shares of EV startup Rivian losing about three-fifths of their value so far this year. We'll take a closer look at what the CEO tells the Journal today about supply chain, not just this year, but in the years to come. We'll get to uh, Rivian and Tesla. Got some calls on Wendy's, Gap, the airlines, and chips. There's a look at futures on this Monday. Squawk on the streets back in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rivian has gone from an IPO darling to an EV startup with shares down more than 48 percent since going public just back in November. Philip Bow joins us now with an inside look at Rivian and the challenges that are facing the company. Hi, Phil. Morgan, we had a chance to go inside Rivian's production plant in Normal, Illinois. That's in central Illinois. It's the old Mitsubishi plant that Rivian has gutted, and they now have three assembly lines there. That's RJ Scaringe at that chalkboard, basically uh, going over where we were going to be going uh, during a tour last week where they talked about production, gave us an update on where they are. He says the supply chain challenges that they have faced since their IPO, since they started production, they're being addressed. The RV or R1S, the electric SUV, that production has uh, begun and is gradually increasing. And RJ is starting to feel like, yeah, I think we're getting past some of the growing pains. I'd say, you know, high 90 percent we feel really, really good about. It's the it's a small percentage of parts that are constraining our ramp. And whether those are harnesses or semiconductors, um, those are the areas we're laser focused on to make sure we expand our, our, our supply and do therefore expand how many vehicles we can produce. 
By the way, he says the chip crisis, it's going to be with the industry through 2023. That's not new. Everybody in the industry is saying that. Their guidance for this year, 25,000 vehicles. If they had enough chips, harnesses, all of the uh, components that they need, they could probably do 50,000 is what he says. The R1S SUV production is ramping up. They've got 83,000 reservations as you take a look at shares of Rivian since its IPO in November. This is a case where the company is essentially in the penalty box until it can show that it is getting past the production challenges that it encountered when it first started up. One of the things that's going to be helping this company over the next several years, Morgan, is the fact that they have begun EDV production. That's electric delivery van production for the Amazon delivery vans. Remember, Amazon mm. owns a stake in Twitter. We saw a number of those vans being built coming off the assembly line, and that's 100,000 orders. It's a nice backstop to have as you're ramping up production. Absolutely, it is. I mean, the comments, the comments about not only semiconductors and, and the shortages we're seeing there, but also the potential risks to the battery supply chain in coming years, which I know he's spoken about yep. uh, repeatedly as well. I mean, when you whether it's uh, whether it is a Rivian, whether it's some of the other EV startups uh, or the established automakers in the space right now. I mean, what is this going to do for pricing? Because I can't help but think it only adds upward pressure at a time where you're trying to convert yes. more people to come into this part of the market. Yeah, the pressure will continue towards the upside for two reasons. One, limited supply. Two, look at the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of electric vehicles that are being manufactured right now. The price point is above $50,000. Now, I understand, Carl, you've got the Lightning that will be coming out. Uh, production is going to begin next week. They're starting with a base price of 40000 We always talk about the base price. Nobody buys a vehicle for the base price. <laughs> They're going to buy for more than that. All of that combined is going to be putting pressure on the EV pricing that we see over the next several years, including the fact that it's a tight supply of the materials needed for uh, batteries and battery cells. To the long-term growth, uh, growth forecast, Phil, thank you. Uh, fascinating stuff, uh, Phil LeBeau on Rivian. Coming up this morning, a pretty rough morning for shares of Didi as the company prepares for a USD listing. We're going to have details. Shares going to open down about 19% here. More Squawk on the Street when we come back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bunch of Fed speak headed our way this week. We're going to get Bullard tonight. Powell on Thursday, as we said earlier. Yields have backed off a touch. Got the 10-year just uh, below 283. And the spread between two tens approaching the highest level since March 3rd. The opening bells in five minutes. Shares of Didi are down in the pre-market. The Chinese ride-hailing firm announcing it'll hold a shareholder meeting 
May 23rd to vote on delisting from the New York Stock Exchange. Didi also saying it's in, quote, full cooperation with the cybersecurity review in China. Separately, Didi did report a 12.7% decline in quarterly revenue from a year ago. Kind of has our eye, Morgan, once again on the fraying of relations, or at least capital markets, between U.S. and China. It does. And I thought that was pretty interesting, right? You got this ongoing cybersecurity investigation in China. You've got ongoing board changes. You've got this delisting meeting next month. And yet you have Chinese regulators coming out explicitly and saying this has nothing to do with the other U.S. listed Chinese stocks. It's not related to the ongoing discussions between the two countries about auditing requirements either. But, David, it does speak to perhaps implicitly or not this uh, broader maelstrom we've seen in terms of tensions between the two companies where financial markets are concerned. I mean, just Didi, what was it, a week after the company went public, we saw Chinese regulators crack down. Yeah, that's what I always come back to as well, Morgan, when I pull up the chart. I think it had a couple of up days there, and then it's been nothing but down since then. Uh, and this may be near a new low uh, at this point, or very close to one, to your point. What did the underwriters know, and when did they know it, and how many of those shareholders, uh, you know, what is it, a year or so later, are like, are you kidding me? And now it's going to be delisted. Not to mention, of course, the uh, tensions on their business from those regulators and the various actions that have been taken, Carl, uh, in its home market. Yeah. Let's uh, get set up for the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange and get the CNBC real-time exchange. At the big board, it's going to be Grayscale Investments, celebrating the launch of the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF. At the Nasdaq, Smart Global, a technology holding company, uh, doing the honors as we're coming off three losing weeks for the Dow, two losing weeks for the S&P and the Nasdaq. And we got a bunch of markets in the EU closed for Easter Monday today. So we'll see what uh, that does to volume as we watch Brett fill in. Morgan, we'll definitely watch to see how B of A trades uh, mm -hmm. as we put some of these early financial prints to bed. Yeah, we've got 60-plus S&P 500 companies reporting this week, seven Dow components across a wide swath of sectors and industries. So should be getting... Uh, more into the thick of earnings and and how these what I will call the the three eyes the macro eyes interest rates inflation and invasion of Ukraine are affecting companies uh, as we do start to get these first quarter prints David yeah I mean it's funny just taking a look at the banks and still seeing how you know JP Morgan has, has reacted it it's not been a good year as we well know with that stock down over 20 percent earnings last week did nothing to sort of uh, rally shareholders to any large extent, of course, as you take a look at, uh, again, uh, the major banks not giving up too much right now. Questions uh, at J.P. Morgan began with its uh, earlier uh, quarter and then this last one, but on terms of expenses. But now it's more about, well, capital markets activity at this point. Although, and Jamie Dimon's comments, obviously, on the conference call last week as well, uh, Carl certainly raised some concerns in terms of the risks out there for the broader economy, ones that we have talked about many times. But uh, no real bottom in sight as of yet for those names. Amongst the big banks, as you well know, Wells Fargo has been the best performer. But uh, not long ago, it had actually been flat to up. It is still down about three and a half percent so far this year. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's hard to separate uh, the financials activity from housing activity. A couple mm. really interesting data points, Morgan, over the weekend regarding home prices. One was just some data from Redfin showing that home prices may be showing some signs of uh, a cracking here. Boise, uh, a top 100 market, is flirting with negative prices year on year. And then the Dallas uh, Morning News had a piece about the number of homes for sale in Dallas in the month of March. 
2400 down 88% year on year. Uh, we're getting down to inventory levels where maybe they're just homes that aren't going to move at all. Uh, it's possible. And then when you just see what's been a very dramatic spike in mortgage rates in just a number of months, um, when you think about where we were at December and the fact that, you know, a 30-year fixed is, what, more than 5% right now? And that's, you know, if you're really qualifying for the top, um, it's not surprising. And then the Fed pulling back and tightening uh, in general sort of speaks to what is softening demand in some of these hottest markets. Um, I also just want to take a look at energy this morning because, once again, it's the top performing sector in the S&P. You got crude oil trading back above the levels that uh, it was trading at or back to the levels it was trading at before President Biden announced that historic release of SPR reserves. I think that's pretty noteworthy here. And you're seeing the stocks react to that. Also, natural gas, David, trading at its highest level since 2008, uh, which is helping those gas stocks, too. Um, So it really speaks to we're seeing some potential cooling in the economy as the Fed begins to tighten and where um, the heat continues to to dial up a notch in terms of these inflationary headwinds. Yeah. And natural gas prices here you think are high? Well, take a look at what they are in Europe. We haven't talked about, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine much yet this morning. But certainly, I think over the weekend, you had to take note of the fact that European nations are now talking openly about really trying to uh, stop or at least uh, uh, halt to some extent their use of Russian natural gas. That would be a big step, of course, for countries like Germany that depend for as much as half of their energy production on Russian natural gas, or at least half of the gas that they use. Uh, it comes from that country. And yet they are talking about doing things to uh, to increase efficiency, Morgan, uh, lower energy usage overall. But that would be a huge Blow for the Russians, which obviously would be seen as a real positive given how much money comes into their economy as a result of their sale of energy products. But it also could mean significant things, dislocations for the European economy. We've talked a lot about it as well. Haven't taken a look at those markets yet this morning. But that's a big story that we've got to keep a close eye on. Of course, we do uh, over time expect in some way that production here will be able to replace at least some of it if, in fact, they do go that, ro- that route, Morgan, in terms of their use of uh, Russian energy products. Yeah, some, I think, being kind of kind of the key there. And we'll see how all of that continues to play out and how quickly you can start to ramp some of that production and how much policy, particularly here domestic policy, can contribute to that um, since we are starting to see potentially some easing of that policy where uh, the Biden administration is concerned. Um, I also think it's really noteworthy and it looks like the major averages are all turning fractionally higher. But Dow Transports are under a little bit of pressure this morning. One area where we have seen these higher energy prices um, play out, and I think we will see play out and get, get sort of more meat on the bone, where at least from an earnings perspective, where that's concerned is going to be the transports. Um, and the fact that we have seen those travel names, including those airlines, trade higher in recent weeks, Carl. Something we're going to be talking about more in the next hour. Um, but can that continue to sustain uh, and how much of those higher fuel costs, for example, at the airlines can be passed on to consumers? I mean, right now there seems to be the sentiment that there's a lot of pent up demand and people are going to get onto planes. People are going to travel uh, coming out of the pandemic for the past two years. But how long does that continue if you can if you see these prices elevate? Yep. Uh, we're going to get uh, actually UBS today does upgrade Delta uh, to buy their target goes from 44 
up to 53. Uh, their argument is that coming off of the earnings last week, uh, better than expected revenue trends. And a view, uh, Morgan, that premium travel is maybe a little more permanent than just a post-COVID trend. At the same time, they do cut United to neutral. Uh, they maintain uh, 51, but they argue there that the operational picture might be a little less smooth as United at least tries to go to a more aggressive growth strategy. Kind of an interesting split call out of UBS. And by the way, J.B. Hunt mm -hmm. tonight. So maybe we get yep. some data on trucking and whether or not these this decline in freight shipping rates is going to be something that will stick around for a while. That's right. Trucking and intermodal where J.B. Hunt is concerned, which is very skewed towards the consumer, something we've already been talking about quite a bit uh, to kick off <clears throat> this hour. Uh, and then, of course, you're going to get some of the railroads later this week, too, which really just kind of move everything um, from intermodal to all the different types of commodities and, and finished goods as well. I mean, with the freight side of the transports, those are fuel charges that tend to pass out and push out to uh, the shippers that are hiring these companies to move these goods. Uh, it tends to be a little bit more delayed. It's, it's, a, little, it's a different business model where the fuel costs are concerned versus the passenger airlines. Um, but to your point, Carl, we have seen a softening in trucking spot rates. And then while the port congestion here in the U.S. seems to be easing in recent weeks, at least on the West Coast, what are these COVID lockdowns in China and what that's doing to port backups in China going to mean coming into the summer months and what's peak shipping season as well. A lot of, a lot of questions to uh, pull apart there as investors more broadly are focused on slowing economic growth and, and what that's ultimately going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are nowhere near uh, out of the supply chain issues. No. And in fact, I think, Morgan, I'm sure you have conversations as well that indicate it's as bad as it's ever been uh, in certain areas. And, and, you know, so we can expect a follow through in terms of potentially price increases as well as a result. Yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to have to see and we're going to have to see how some of these different companies, whether it is a J.B. Hunt or a CSX or a Union Pacific um, or some of the other <clears throat> names that are going to be reporting just this week in the next couple of days, what they have to say about that, because so far what's happened is you had seen a ding in volumes and freight volumes because of those supply chain snarls. But companies were able to offset that with higher pricing. Is that a dynamic that continues or as volumes start to ease up a little bit, especially when you look at something like rail? Um, are we going to start to see that price and soften, pricing soften as well, which ultimately, I keep saying, I feel like said inflation so many times. If this were like, if we were playing a drinking game this morning, like people would be drunk right now if inflation was the word, Carl. But, um, you know, what, <laughs> what that does to inflation. <laughs> that, that's a new yeah, game. Well, it's it's Monday morning. Kind of like uh, when you it's listen to Roxanne by the police. <laughs> You got to drink every time they say Roxanne. You would have put them to shame uh, just now, Morgan. By the way, um, Shanghai, I don't know if you saw this, David, subway usage in Shanghai, where you normally this time last year had about 10.5 million people taking the subway, 1,500 people took wow. the, sh the subway in Shanghai yesterday. So the, the, the supply chain picture is, is not going away anytime soon. Um, we should probably... Look at Disney, uh, David, one of the Dow laggards this morning. Uh, we get Netflix tomorrow night, a big piece in the FT over the weekend about how at least households in the U.K. are canceling video subscriptions at a record pace as the consumer there kind of braces for what might be a difficult year from a household budget standpoint. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what, not necessarily what the print is out of Netflix, but certainly what the guidance says. Without a doubt. Uh, and obviously, as we know, it's the foreign markets where their growth has been most significant for years now. <clears throat> Domestically, 
some growth, but not much really uh, here in the U.S. Uh, we will be watching that closely. It's an interesting point in terms of budgets and how many streaming services people have. The ability, of course, as you know as well, Carl, to turn on and off with relative ease versus you know, trying to actually get your cable company to disconnect uh, is another uh, feature of direct-to-consumer uh, and streaming that's an important component of it mm. because, of course, it is much easier and therefore you can even do so for a hit series and then choose to uh, not subscribe in a given month as well. Uh, Disney, I mean, plenty of, plenty of continued press as well about Bob Chapek, the company's uh, CEO, and some of the tensions that he's been under in terms of politics on both sides, uh, certainly in Florida um, uh, of late, um, as that continues to sort of uh, battle. Um, guys, did want to come back to Twitter if we could. It's down. It had looked as though it would open higher this morning. In fact, it was just moments ago, but it is now down. You heard Michael Nathanson a few moments ago on our show say, hey, if you can get the 5420 out of uh, must take it. He is uh, in that camp that says the stock uh, is overvalued at this price uh, and does not seem to be a believer that uh, current management will be able to actually uh, increase value significantly beyond what Musk would be willing to pay. Of course, that continues to be a key question. Um, how serious is he about it? How serious was he about best and final as a component of that bid, as he indicated when he made it. I don't hear about much back and forth as of yet between the company and Mr. Musk in terms of them perhaps saying, come on, give us much more detail about your financing and what about going higher? What is there a willingness to do so? If you do that as, a, as, as the board, you want to at least have some sense of overall value and perhaps the idea that there is somebody else out there who might be willing to pay it. As I said earlier, I find it very hard to draw up uh, the math that makes any sense for private equity in a real way, given the check that would have to be written, because this is not an overly leverageable asset, uh, given its uh, cash flow characteristics right now. And so it would be mm. an enormous amount of equity. And then you've got Jack Dorsey's weird tweets, Morgan. I mean, you know, the yeah. two of them, the, uh, unclear what, if anything's going on between Musk this. and Dorsey. Yeah. I know. But calling his own board out that he's still a member of as yep. being dysfunctional it was kind of interesting. Uh, he steps off the board very soon. He owns about two and a half percent, but got to keep an eye on that relationship as well between Dorsey and, uh, and Musk. Apparently they're not enemies. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I thought that was really fascinating because it, it doesn't seem like he's for or against Musk. Um, it's, it's interesting to try and parse that. I'd also just note that probably for many potential investors in the midst of all of this or proponents um, on the Elon Musk side, this isn't necessarily a bet on Twitter. This is a bet on Elon Musk, who has made investors, for better or worse, a lot of money over the years, Carl. Uh, certainly his, uh, his TED Talk interview on Thursday uh, was interesting. Talked about a plan B. Wasn't more specific than that, of course. Uh, but that's about 20 cents away from what would be the lowest price of the month, or going back to April 1st on Twitter. Uh, Dow's up 130. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Morning, Bob. Good morning, Carl. Uh, happy Monday, everybody. Uh, we have a mixed open, really, because United Health's helping the Dow, Goldman's helping the Dow, but tech flattish to down again. Apple, Microsoft, mega cap tech really not doing much. Uh, let's take a look. And once again, of course, it's cyclicals that are, the, uh, rather, it's the commodity-based names. Energy stocks hitting new highs, metals and mining, that XME every single day there, uh, just a, a leader on the upside. 
Banks slightly on the upside. They started down. Tech has now moved into positive territory. It initially uh, was on the negative side. New high list is, again, the usual names. The Halliburtons that we're seeing, uh, Apache, old Apache, APA, uh, hitting new highs right now. Uh, Hess, Valero, uh, all the names that we have been seeing for the past several weeks hitting new highs. It's interesting to watch the new low list because there's some new names that are starting to appear. A couple of the trust banks, like State Street, STT, hitting a new 52-week low. Oh, that was rather surprising. We're also seeing some of the names that are uh, semiconductor capital equipment makers, LAM Research, Applied Materials, also hitting 52-week lows. That's a little bit uh, of a surprise. So what we've got here is a bifurcated market for all of 2022. We know what's been working. Energy stocks have been working. Well, consumer staples have been working. Utilities have been working. Not working is anything associated with growth, and that includes technology, communication services, consumer discretionary. All those growth people, they, all they do is watch Watch the two-year now. That is the proxy for the Fed. And it's very hard for anything growth-oriented to keep working or rising with the two-year keeps rising. So we're in a trading range, that 4,200 to 4,600 range. The star of the year is a very unlikely player. I'm going to show you an ETF. Uh, this is the low volatility, high dividend. This is like the perfect ETF for the moment. Low volatility like Procter & Gamble and relatively high dividends. It's the perfect combination. It never was particularly popular, but it's a superstar this year. Every day this is hitting an historic high on very heavy volume. The big issue, of course, is earnings and what's going on with earnings right now. The problem is the first quarter numbers are fairly low, and they They've got to come up because you see the whole rest of the year, two, three, four. These are the numbers for the S&P. They're all much higher. They're banking on the idea that we're going to do much better earnings in the second half of the year. That's a very, very tall order considering the pressure we're going to have from the Federal Reserve. So we've got to keep an eye on that. The market's acting right now like we're at peak earnings, not now. Not later, but right now. So corporate America is going to have to sound a lot more bullish, and that's a big order. That's part of the problem. Carl, look at first one uh, Q1 earnings season. We've got 35 companies reporting. 40% have had their estimates raised for the second quarter. That's good. But the average estimate is actually going down. We need that to start turning around here. We'll get 68 companies this week. We'll see. But I would say very flattish start for Q1 earnings season. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. We'll see you in a bit. Bob Pisani. As we go to break, let's take a look at the bond report. Check out Treasuries. We are going to get uh, Bullard this afternoon, as we said. We'll get existing homes on Wednesday. A little beige book action in there as well. And then Thursday, Powell and Lagarde at this IMF event for the time being. Ten-year yield kind of swirling around back above 283. China's President Xi facing continued challenges from his zero-COVID lockdowns. Shanghai restrictions nearing month-long process now. Our Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with the latest. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Carl. Well, those lockdowns are definitely having a strain on the economy. Uh, the first quarter figures uh, showed that it was actually better than expected, coming in at 4.8 percent. But the trend overall is for slower growth. When you look at the quarter on quarter numbers, uh, the numbers quarter on quarter, they are up by 1.3 percent, which is slower from the fourth quarter. Also, the March data was quite revealing. The retail sales figures uh, contracted by 3.5 percent. And the unemployment rate was higher by 5.8 percent. And this is um, really telling because these are the worst numbers that China has seen um, in these areas since 2020. Now, Shanghai reported its first deaths um, today uh, since the uh, most current lockdown. Three elderly people out of 370 
72,000 infected cases that were reported since March 1st. Um, there are, there's an expectation that there's going to be even several more lockdowns. In fact, we saw those spread over the weekend to uh, Zhengzhou zone, which is um, an area where there are c- quite a few um, iPhone uh, making facilities, uh, Taiyuan, which is a coal town, uh, Xi'an, which um, recently went into lockdown already, uh, being called thrown back into lockdown, and then another small town in a farming province called Anhui. So uh, the, there's been a a lot of discussion here about exactly uh, what this is going to do to the economy. And um, in a rare move, there have been several business people, um, Chinese business people, who've been speaking out about this. Um, some executives from Huawei, um, Xpeng, the, of course, the EV startup, and um, others as well, um, especially in the international business community, saying that uh, this is going to have a really negative effect on their industries. Um, talk that there has been a lot of talk that production is restarting this week in Shanghai because of all this pressure. Uh, Tesla is supposed to start up their production, Carl. And there's also been discussion that there could be more uh, lift um, of this lockdown by Thursday. But over the overarching feeling, though, Carl, is that President Xi still very much believes in the zero COVID policy. In fact, state media today said that this policy is correct and effective. Back to you. Uh, fascinating, Eunice, uh, with the real world implications that we see crossing our ticker in real time. Uh, just amazing. Eunice Yoon uh, joining us from China. Talk about the lockdown there as we got some opening gains on this week where we're coming off of three straight weekly losses for the Dow, which is up 128. Bank of America's earnings call is going on right now. Leslie Picker's been listening in and she has some highlights. Leslie, I do notice that um, Bank of America shares and all the shares of the big banks have actually turned around. They're all well in the green now. Not sure if it's anything that came off the call or not. Yeah, it's a good question, David, because we saw Bank of America shares trading firmly positive in the pre-market right after their earnings were released, then dipped into the negative over the course of the call. Now they are firmly positive, up uh, about 2.5%, so definitely some volatility this morning. That call is about 90 minutes underway at this point in time. Executives have spent a lot of time on this call, quelling concerns that Fed hikes could engineer some sort of slowdown in the economy. CEO Brian Moynihan says this time is different because consumers have higher cash balances in their accounts than previous cycles. Could a slowdown in the economy happen? Perhaps. But right now, the size of the economy is bigger than pre-pandemic levels. Consumer spending remains strong. Unemployment is low and wages are rising. Company earnings are also generally strong. Credit is widely available. And our customers' uses of the lines of credit is still low. Moynihan, the last of the big six bank CEOs to report earnings, sounding much more sanguine than his peers. The bank also released reserves about $362 million worth during the quarter, which is indicative of management's belief that its balance sheet can really uh, manage, can weather the macro headwinds that are out there. B of A reporting record deposit balances within consumer banking up 14% to more than a trillion dollars during the quarter. Average loan balances among consumer and commercial were up about 10% compared with last year. Revenue within consumer as a whole, which is B of A's largest division, was up about 9% to about $9 billion thanks to higher net interest income in a rising interest rate environment. So Moynihan on the call saying that the firm is, quote, obviously 
obviously aware of what the Fed is trying to engineer, but says higher rates should still be a tailwind for this firm. Carl? Interesting, LP. Uh, sounds like uh, he's saying a lot of things that Kramer wish uh, Charlie Scharf had said last week. We're going to watch uh, trading mm -hmm. action closely here as we get uh, exactly. the S&P now in the red. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.